the angel Gabriel told Mary that she was going to have a child, the Christ child, one of the things that Gabriel told her was this. He will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And in those words, Gabriel didn't say that this will be God with us, but he was implying people will recognize that this is the presence of God himself. People will call him Emmanuel. They will call him God with us when they see what he does in this world. So what we've been doing in this series is looking at maybe those times or seasons in life when it can be a little more difficult to say God is with us. We've seen how he's with us in the valley when you go through an extended difficulty and the only way to get uh, through it is to go through it. There's no way out. Uh, We've seen what God does in the waiting times of life when there's nothing you can do but wait. We've looked at different seasons of life where it might be difficult to say, yes, God is with me, to see, practically speaking, what he's doing in those seasons. And so today we're going to wrap up the series by looking at an area of life that really combines all of the different places that we've been to so far. I'm going to share it with you right away, then I'm going to back up and kind of tell a quick story. But today what we're going to look at is how God is with us in the fog. And by in the fog, we mean that God's plan— when God's plan for you is not immediately clear. So you're looking to to figure out what God wants you to do or what his purpose for you is, but you're having trouble discerning or identifying what his plan is, what his will is in a certain time of your life. Now, in the last few months, if you've been connected to social media and if you've been going through the scrolls, you've probably picked up on a story that went viral. And I have to set this up a little bit. I know not all of you are country music fans. There is a sharp drop-off between people who are fans and people who hate country music. And one day I'll figure out why that is. Um, So whether you're a country music fan or not, this story kind of speaks to everyone. What happened was this. Back in October, back in October, country music star, this guy, Keith Urban, I lost his name for a minute. As soon as I see his beautiful blue eyes, it just comes right back. (laughs) Keith Urban did a concert in Toledo, Ohio. And this would have been just a normal concert that, that he would have done in any given place. But there was one special fan who purchased a ticket for that concert. She was a 25 year old. And as it turns out, she was not able to make it to the concert because she was in hospice care. She was what, what uh, Keith would later call one of his greatest fans, um, and yet she was plagued with so many medical issues that physically she just was not able to make it to the concert, and it became clear she would never get to see another one. So the nursing staff at the hospital, they picked up on how much she was a fan of Keith Urban to the point of almost stalking, but we'll, ca- we'll, we'll, call, her, we'll call her a fan. She, she loved him so much, the nursing staff created this social media push to try to get Keith's attention. And sure enough, wouldn't you know it, before the concert started, Keith went to the hospital, to her room, and serenaded her with her own personal song. He did not have a band with him, He did not even have a guitar with him. All he had was a phone that was playing one of his songs in the background, and he sang along with it. And this video has gone viral. What happened here wasn't a great performance. He had a good voice. It was a fine performance. 
But the reason this got all the feels going in people is because just his being there made a huge difference. His presence filled her with joy, with peace, and I'm going to argue his presence, as the presence of most people, when, when, you, when you show up and you don't have to, his presence gave her the gift of purpose. That's what presence often does. Presence gives purpose. When you show up but you didn't have to, when they showed up but you knew they were busy and they had other things going on, that, that impressed upon you the, the importance of what you're doing or who you are. Your presence or someone's presence inflates and gives purpose to whatever it is that's going on. And what we're seeing so far in this series is that God is with you all the time. And so let's make a logical connection. If God is with you all the time, it means he's not through with you. It means there's something else coming up for you. And if God is with you, that gives you purpose. If God is with you, that means he has a plan for you. Number one on your sheet, if you want to take notes, God with us means that there is a plan for you. And as long as he promises to be with you, that means there is still something coming. So far in this series, we've seen God with us in so many different areas, but in this message, what I hope to do is, is tie a bow on this and demonstrate for you the joy and peace of knowing that God is with you and that he has a plan for you. But what I know is true for, for me and for many of you is that there can be seasons of life where you're not sure if this is true. You doubt if you have purpose. And listen, listen. When you doubt your purpose, you doubt God's presence. When you doubt if you have a purpose, you tend to doubt God's presence. This starts off when you're in middle school. First of all, it's awkward to begin with, middle school. But middle school is when you start to ask those questions, well, who am I? Do I matter? What am I all about? What's my purpose in life? And middle school is when we all start to ask this question, what is my purpose? And spoiler alert, middle school kids, if you're here, this question continues into adulthood as we're about to see. But it really starts when you're about in middle school and you start to do this self-assessment and self-evaluation. What is my purpose? And this changes so much in middle school and even into adulthood, what you think and believe your purpose is. And then you get into high school. Soft, uh, freshman, sophomore year of high school, you begin to ask this question. You ask, well, what should I do? Like, what's my plan for life? And this is a fun question to ask when you're on your first or second year of high school. It's not until your third or fourth year of high school that the question changes a little bit. You begin to ask, what can I do? <laughs> The world used to be full of opportunities, and now it's like, oh, I actually have to do something to, you know, take hold of one of those opportunities. And you, st you wrestle with the question, well, what is my plan? What is God's purpose for me? God, would you just show me my purpose in this life? In fact, this is a time when a lot of us in the room have fallen away from God or drifted from God. You get into high school, into college, and because, maybe part of it is, because we doubt our purpose, we tend to doubt God's presence. And so that's a natural time for us to drift away from God as we try to find our own plan, our own purpose, because we don't know what his is. But if you make it through that, you get into your 20s, 
Maybe you went through college, or maybe you just entered into a trade right away. But you, you get into those 20s, and you start to work for a living. You don't call it a career. It's just a job for now. You'll call it a career later once you figure out if you like it or not. But you're trying to find your way, and you, you kind of land on something, and you're getting into it. But you, you start to ask this question in your 20s. Well, did I pick the right path? I mean, there were so many to choose from. Is this really the right path for me? God, could you please just show me your plan or your purpose for what you want from me. In your 20s, you're kind of wrestling with that, and you finally land somewhere. And into your 30s and 40s, it's kind of your sweet spot. That's where I am right now, where you're, you're learning stuff, you've got a lot of experience, but you're not really old yet. <laughs> I'll get to you old people in a minute. And, and what happens is you got this experience, and, and maybe you start to get job offers to different companies. People start to notice that you're, you're, you're smart, you're experienced, you're, not, you're, you're still affordable, you know, you're not you know, way up there yet. And, and so you start to ask the question, well, wait a minute, should I change my direction? Should I change my field? Uh, is, do I want to continue where I'm at, or should I double down in something else? And so you start to ask, well, what is my purpose? God, what is your plan for me? Would you please just show it to me? And then you get into your 50s, your 60s, and you get really old. <laughs> and you start to look back at your life, and you see all the decisions that brought you to where you're at. And now you've got experience, but no one really wants you anymore because you're so old. And maybe the job offers don't come as frequently as they do, or as they used to. I'm sorry, I'm offending everyone in the room today. And one day you wake up, and there's a question in your mind that just haunts you. It haunts you, and you don't know where it came from, but it's there. The question is, what, sh- what if I missed God's purpose for my life? What if he had a destination in mind, and I just went the wrong way, and now I'm so far in my path, there's no way to realize what God's purpose or plan was for me. God, would you please, this is like my last chance, would you show me what your plan is or what your purpose is for me? And then you get into your... 70s, 80s, 90s, some people in this church, hundreds. And for a while, retirement is fun, but then maybe you start to wonder, what do I do with all this time? How do I spend this time that I have left? And you give it a shot, you're you're joyful, you're happy, but after a while, you just get tired. And you wake up one morning asking yourself this, what is God's purpose for living? Why am I still here? God, would you show me your plan? Would you show me your purpose? You see, if we tend to doubt God's presence when we doubt our purpose, then a lot of us will go through life with serious seasons of doubt. And this should be the safest place to address them. We crave purpose. We crave predictability We as human beings crave to be part of a bigger plan to the point where if we feel like we're in the fog, like we we wish we could get somewhere, but we just don't know where to go. We're, We're kind of in the fog. When we're in the fog, we just grasp for things. Where is my purpose? Where is my plan? To the point where when things don't go according to your plan, you try to impose God's will on it. Let me give you an example. Um, Let's say in, in college, Uh, You thought you found the guy, like he was going to get down on his knee and give you the ring, and that was going to be that, and you you, you had this plan in mind where you're going to get married, and then he broke up with you. 
and one of your friends tried to console you and said, there, there, it'll be fine, and they say these words to you, they say, it was, it was just God's will that that happened. Well, was it God's will? Let's, let's think about that for a minute. Here's a more common thing. I do this all the time. I'm a pastor. I should know better, but you probably do this too. Where you're driving down the road, and you see off in the distance, there's the stoplight, and it's green, and you know it's going to turn red by, by the time you get there. And then you get closer, and it's still green. And you get closer, and you're like, I'm ready to brake. It's still green. And you go through the intersection, and it's still green. And you think to yourself, God must have a plan for me today. He wants me to be somewhere. It was his will that kept that light green for me as long as it did. Or maybe this is you. Maybe you were going through this difficult decision in your life, and you were just seeking God's will. You wanted to, to just find an answer from God. And so what you did was, you got a Bible, and you put it on a table, and you open it up, and you put your finger down, and you read the verse, and you're like, God, is this my answer? Apparently, I'm the only one who's ever done that. But you, you put your Bible down. You say, God, whatever your will is, just say it to me. And then you read something that is not anything close to what you're going through. But we just, we crave that purpose, and we crave being part of a bigger plan. But here's what we have to govern this with. We have to be careful because God has revealed his will to you and to me to a certain extent. We cannot understand his full will. The creature cannot understand or comprehend his whose ways are higher than our ways, whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We cannot understand his will unless he reveals it to us. So keep this in mind through our topic today as we seek God's purpose, as we seek God's will. We should seek God's will is something you seek. It is not something that you get to determine. The only time you should say, this is God's will, is when the scriptures clearly say, this is God's will. And by the way, scripture is pretty limited in those areas. It is God's will that all people be saved. It is God's will that we reflect God's love in our life. It is God's will that we love one another as Jesus loved us. Other than that, Maybe one more. It's his will that his church makes disciples of all nations. See, God's will is limited to things that are mostly important for eternity. So when we ask him, well, should I date him or not? Will the light stay green or not? Here's something to think about. When you impose God's will on those things in your life, that can be a form of pride. God is so interested in me, he kept that light green. God is so invested in me, he made my hand point to the right verse that gave me hope in that right moment. It can be this extreme form of self-centeredness to the point where you and I should forfeit any divine plan that God has for us. He says, fine, you want to be part of this little tiny thing here? Fine, go have fun with it. But in forgiveness, through Jesus, God is reaching out to you today to gather you in, saying, child, there's a bigger plan, there's a better plan. And even though you might feel like you're in the fog today as for what God's purpose is for you, he wants to show you how to navigate through it. Because as much as we might doubt his presence when we doubt our purpose, he is present, he is with you in the fog. 
By the end of the message, I want to show you one practical way where God, he might not show you magically which way to go, but he will equip you to go where he wants you to go. And we're going to get to that as we look at the real life of a person who I would say was in the fog more than anyone else in Scripture. Today we're going to look at the life of someone we've talked about recently, King David. We're going to look at him because before he was king, there was this immense fog that kept him from seeing God's path. He kind of knew God's purpose, but he didn't know how to get there. He was in the fog. And as we look at his story, it's going to lead us to one conclusion, one thing that all of us can take to help us navigate those seasons in the fog. So the way it started for David was this. You think it's cool when Keith Urban shows up to see you. When David was barely a teenager, the prophet Samuel showed up to his house. The prophet Samuel. You guys don't look impressed. This was a prophet from God. And he showed up to Jesse's house. Jesse was David's dad. And Samuel just dropped this bomb. He said, Jesse, one of your sons is going to be the king of Israel. Amazing. There was only one problem. You see, Samuel went through all the sons, and finally he landed on the youngest one, David, the pipsqueak, the guy who was out just doing, you know, the dirty work. David was the one to be the next king. And so David was anointed king of Israel right there on the spot. There was only one problem. You know what it was? Israel already had a king. His name was, his name was Saul. And if you were to look at Saul, remember David was barely a teenager. As he looked at Saul, Saul was kingly material. Saul was a head taller than everyone else in the crowd. He had this confidence about him, albeit a bit arrogant, but he had this confidence about him, and people naturally followed him. And now you've got this barely teenager, David, who's anointed king. How is he supposed to be king when there's already a king? And so immediately David enters this fogginess where he kind of knows what God's purpose is, but he has no idea how it can unfold in his life. So what you see David doing on early in his life is he simply does what he can do. It's by divine coincidence that David happens to see this giant named Goliath who's taunting the Israelite army. And you know the story. David slew the giant. And from that day on, people started to pay attention to this young kid named David. He's thrust into the army. He moves up through the ranks to the point where David becomes the chief commander of Israelites' army. He is the one who wins the most, who is the most successful. And when David goes out with a group of men, you know they will return with mission accomplished. He became so successful and so popular that people came up with a jingle for him. Did you know this? David had a jingle. They said, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. It went just like that. The, the pitch, the tone, everything was exactly like that. David was becoming successful. People were noticing David, and so Saul became so, so jealous to the point where Saul wanted to kill David. One day David was in the palace. Saul grabbed his spear and threw it at David, and David darted out of the way and lived. Another time, same thing happened. Saul grabbed his spear. David ran out of the way. Spear went through the wall. David was safe. Finally, David said, I should get away from this guy. So David goes on the run. He's living as an outlaw. 
The anointed king is living as an outlaw from his own kingdom. As a small shadow of what would one day happen to the greater David. He's living as an outlaw from his own kingdom. And that's not good enough for Saul. Saul says he must be destroyed. And so what we're going to look at today is this episode where Saul gets so furious with his jealousy that he's going to give David an opportunity to see through the fog at what seems to be an opportunity from God. Here's how it's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 24. So after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, so he had just been out on the battlefields chasing down enemies. We don't know how long it was, weeks, maybe months. As soon as he returns home, he gets word that David is in the desert of En Gedi. David has settled up a camp there because David knows you've been busy with the Philistines and he's kind of gotten soft and so we know where he is. So Saul said, well, let's take 3,000 able young men from all Israel. And he set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats, which sounds like a punk band, I know. (laughs) But the way this worked was when you raised animals back then, you didn't build like huge stables. And I'm sorry to burst your Christmas story. Jesus probably was not born in a stable. What they did instead was they would make use of the natural stables in the area called caves. There were, there were caves all around, and they would keep the animals safe in the caves, block off the entrance if needed, and that's how they would take care of them. So, so you got this area where the wild goats are, the wild goats live in the caves, and, and you also had farmers who would raise things in that area. So David is hiding out there. It's a perfect spot where there's so many different places to hide. And and here's what happens. Saul came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. You have no idea how much I had to exercise my maturity this week. (laughs) Let's just put it this way. Soldiers, kings, it was no big deal to use a tree. For this, Saul had to use a cave. That's all I'm going to say about what Saul was in there for. So he went in there to to relieve himself, and just picture this. All these caves, all these caves, Saul picks one. He goes in by himself because it's embarrassing to have, you know, other people around. And here's what happens. David and his men were far back in that same very cave. Saul happened to pick the one cave that David and his men were hiding in. Now, we're not sure exactly how this worked. Maybe the light at the opening of the cave allowed David's men in the back of the cave to see out, but Saul couldn't see in. But here's what happened next. The, the men start to recognize what happened, and they said, this, they came to a conclusion, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. David, you've been anointed the king of Israel, and up until this point, we've had no idea how you could possibly become king if there's already a king. But now the fog has spread apart, and we see exactly an opportunity that God has placed before you. When they saw that it, when they saw that it was Saul, they came to the conclusion, this is the day the Lord has given to you. We'll come back to that in a moment, but just just be aware. When it comes to the people around you who are helping you navigate through fog, they might impose their assumptions onto your opportunities 
as well. We'll talk more about that in a second. Here's what David did. So he said, this is really Saul. So it seems he kind of crept up. He, he wanted to confirm, is this the target? We need to verify identity. He crept up close, and he was completely unnoticed. And he's right there behind Saul. And, and as it goes on, David crept up unnoticed, and he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, you would write this differently. You'd say, David crept up and cut off his head. That'd be a quick ending. David crept up and bound Saul to capture him. That would be another way to do it. Just picture this. So you've got the, you've got the king of Israel going into a cave to relieve himself, and out comes David with the king's head and the king's sword, now commanding the army of Israel. And that all happens in one day. Imagine that. But instead, David cut a corner of his robe off. And look at this. David was conscience-stricken afterwards. For, for having cut off a corner of his robe. And you might think, that's, why is he so sensitive to this? And here's where you start to get some insight. When it comes to seasons of fog where you're not sure where to go and then a door seems to open, you don't just run through it. You need to evaluate where that door came from. And you need to evaluate what principles dictate whether or not you walk through that door. You see, here's why David was so upset. Next verse. He was so upset, he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. Lord, lay my hand on him, for he is, in case I didn't say it the first time, he is the anointed of the Lord. Translation, God made him a king. I'm not going to change that. What God has put in place I will not replace. I will honor what God has done, and when God sees fit to change the circumstances, I will let him change the circumstances. You see, the the men around him viewed this as, this is an opening from God. This is an opportunity from God. And yes, it was an opportunity, but it was not an opportunity to take matters into David's own hands. Quick reminder for you guys, if you want to write this down, write this down. Just because a door is opened, doesn't mean God opened it. And just because God opens a door doesn't mean he wants you to walk through it. As David evaluates this time in the fog, he finally sees some some clarity, but he must weigh the option against the principles which he must stand on. David, yes, is the Lord's anointed, but so is Saul. And if David would compromise Saul's position as the Lord's anointed, in essence, David is compromising his own. He would not replace what God had put in place. Now, just even from this section, you see David's conscience is is upset. He, He feels horrible for dishonoring the king by cutting part of his robe off. And you'll see this too. You might, you might see through the fog, oh, here's an open door. It must be from God. I, I should go through it. And you kind of walk through the opportunity and you kind of look around and you immediately realize this was the wrong direction. This was the bad choice. And when it comes to times like that, just know that the greatest king that Israel ever had, King David, he went the wrong direction sometimes. He failed sometimes. So here's what I want you to keep in mind. When it comes to your life in the fog, you'll go different ways. You'll learn from mistakes, but keep this in mind. When God is with you, what you can do is this. You can think, number three, you can think direction, 
not perfection. God did not call you to live perfectly according to some divine purpose. He called you to live as light in darkness. You may make mistakes, but you are not defined by them. You are redeemed from your sins. Therefore, you can learn from them. Think direction. Don't think perfection. If you require perfection of yourself, you're setting yourself up as an idol against God. David learned the hard way. Thankfully, this was a little thing. Sometimes David learned the hard way, and it was a big thing. Think direction, not perfection. God is with you in the fog, and even though you make mistakes, he still forgives, and he guides you to where he wants you to be after he restores you through forgiveness. As David went on, here's what he learned. Here's how it continued for him. With these words, David sharply rebuked the men around him, and he did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. Saul had no idea who was behind him the whole time. To the point where we're going to continue here through the next section quickly. David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord, the king! which got Saul's attention, obviously, because he had just left this cave. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. The anointed king of Israel was bowing down to the king of Israel. Crazy, crazy how how David shows his submission, even though they are equals. It goes on. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? You see, Saul was kind of in a fog too, but he was listening to the wrong people to guide him through it. And David calls him out. Here I am on my hands and knees. Why do you listen to people who say I'm here to hurt you? He goes on. This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands. Yes, this was an opportunity from God. Some of the men urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on, the, on my Lord because of my principle that this is the Lord's anointed and I will not replace what God has put in place. And so he's going through this, 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 this dialogue with Saul saying, here's what I did and here's why I did what I did. But I love this next part because you can just picture what Saul is doing here in verse 10. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe. Your robe is in my hand. You just picture Saul picking up his robe. Well, I'll be. And there it is. I cut off the corner of your robe, but, but I did not kill you. I could have, but I didn't. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. Now, you could argue David had the right to kill Saul in that cave. Some might even say he was foolish for not killing Saul in that cave. But David stood on a firm principle that this was the Lord's anointed. And he holds it up in contrast to Saul's wickedness and his, his evil doing by comparison. And finally, David says, there's something not right here. I've been doing everything right, but I'm still in the fog. You're doing everything wrong, and yet you're getting somewhere. Finally, David says this in verse 12. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But here's where I draw my line, and here's where I stop walking. My hand will not touch you. 
he drew his line in the sand and said, here is where I stand and here is why. God blessed what David did. You, you know, the crazy thing is, you look forward two chapters, David and his men stumble once again upon Saul's camp. Saul had been out trying to kill them, him again. And as it turns out, everyone in Saul's camp was sleeping, and David and one of his men walks right up to Saul, sleeping with a spear next to him. Again, David has the opportunity to kill the guy who's trying to kill him, but he holds to this line in the sand. I will not touch him. His tactic was to approach Saul with mercy and kindness. And as you see a thousand years later in the words of the New Testament, it was when the kindness of God our Savior appeared that our hearts were changed. It was not the vengeance of God or the wrath of God that made us change direction. It was the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Now, now to tie this up, um, here's, here's, here's where we're going to go with this. You might be in the fog right now. In fact, you can't believe this is being talked about in church because you're going through a situation at home or at work or in a career or with a kid or with potential kids or with whatever, and you're thinking, I kind of know where I want to end up, but I have no idea which path will take me there. I just want God to show me his plan. I just want God to show me his purpose. And here's what I want to show you today. You see, when David was in that cave, God didn't come and whisper into his ear, David, don't do this. I'll take care of this later. You just let him be. God didn't show up and just show him what to do. God gave David the wisdom to decide what to do. Even though the voices around David were telling him the wrong thing to do, God gave David the wisdom to discern the best path to honor God, but to also seek his will. And here's what I want to give you too. When it comes to whatever fogginess you might be in right now, whatever fogginess will hit you this week, you will pray and wish that God would just show up and show you his plan or tell you his purpose. But God won't do that. At least he usually doesn't do that unless you're a virgin named Mary. What God will do is give you the wisdom to decide. You might make the wrong decision, but when God is with you in the fog, there is forgiveness. And you might fail at times, but instead of thinking perfection, think direction. Think the grace and forgiveness of your, of your God who calls you to his plan and his purpose. And even though you might wrestle to come to a decision, even though you might have three different options, option A, option B, option C, all of them are okay, all of them are good, you say, God, would you give me the wisdom to decide? And here's what I know will happen. Number four on your sheet. God will bless your decision. He always blesses the decision that is made by faith. God will bless your decision, decision, so all you should do is ask him for the wisdom to decide, or maybe ask him for the courage to decide. You yield your decision to him and say, God, would you give me just the wisdom and insight to make this decision? And it might be the wrong one. I might mess it up, but with you there is forgiveness. It's not about perfection. It's about direction. And my heavenly Father is calling me to be his light in this world.
here's where I want to close it off. Where in your life do you sense the fogginess? When you doubt your purpose, you tend to doubt God's presence. And so when you're in the fog and you don't know where to go, I want you to think about direction, not about trying to be perfect, not about perfection. And when you're still not sure where to go, ask God for the wisdom to decide. And the decision you make by faith in him, he will bless one way or another. And that wisdom, where does that come from? It comes from him. Maybe it comes from private times, personal time, just listening to him and his word. Maybe it comes through a church. Maybe it comes through your growth group where you, you share with the people around you, here's the fogginess I'm in. What do you guys think? What do you see from your perspective? And they're able to speak God's wisdom and God's promises into your life. And when you do that, friends, you might not be able to sense God's presence or feel his presence, but I promise you, God is there with you, even in the fog. And I hope you can come back again next week or listen again to the message next week as we start a new series that's going to be helpful in taking practical steps in areas of life where we might not know where to go. God calls us to a direction, and he gives us the wisdom to decide. Let's close today with prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you so much that in sections of scripture like this, you speak so much into our, our lives and into our hearts. From our perspective, there can be cloudy or foggy seasons of life where we're, we're just not sure which, which way to go, which step to take. And a lot of times we beat ourselves up for going the wrong way and for making mistakes, but with you there is forgiveness. So I pray that for the people listening to this message, you would give us the wisdom we need. The wisdom to make a decision that maybe we're unsure of, but by faith we know you will bless. Surround us with the people who have the freedom to speak into our lives, people that we can be vulnerable with and share our struggles with so that they can speak your wisdom into it also. All for the point of simply this, so that we can shine the light of Jesus who has forgiven us, who picks us up, and one, the one who brings us to you in heaven. Bless us this week and into this new year. In Jesus' name, amen.